from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, with six days to Election Day, most recent polls are showing former Vice President Joe Biden favored to win the presidency. But at this time four years ago, most polls also showed Hillary Clinton poised to beat Donald Trump. So what went wrong in 2016? And can the polls be trusted this time? A panel of experts is here to explain polling methods and analysis, lessons learned from the last presidential election, and to take your questions. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Major recent polls suggest Joe Biden will defeat President Trump by a decisive margin in next week's election. A simulation by 538 shows Biden winning 88 times in 100. And a model from The Economist puts Biden's chances of winning the Electoral College at 95 percent. But for the obsessive poll watchers who in 2016 were shocked by Trump's win, today's numbers are fraught. Is this you? Was your confidence in polling shaken four years ago? In this hour, we'll talk about how election polls are constructed, how to interpret them, and how polling methods have changed since 2016. We're joined by Jane Jun, professor of political science at USC. She's an expert on public opinion, political behavior, and polling methods and analysis. Thanks so much for joining us, Jane Jun. Thanks for being. I'm happy to be here. Paul Mitchell is also with us, Vice President of Political Data, Inc., which provides voter information to political campaigns, consultants, and pollsters. Paul Mitchell, glad to have you here as well. Thanks for having me. Also, Matt Barreto is with us, co-founder of Latino Decisions, a political opinion research firm focused on Latino voters. He's also a professor of political science and Chicano studies at UCLA. He's currently a pollster for the Biden-Harris campaign. Thanks for joining us, Matt Barreto. You got it. Happy to be here. I'll start with you, Matt, if I could. So the big question, I mean, are the polls on the presidential race more reliable this year than they were in 2016? Well, we have made significant improvements and adjustments, I think, uh, across the board in polling. And the big question in 2016 was whether or not polls were getting the quote unquote likely voter model right. Where are they interviewing the right people? And as it turns out, there were some strong Trump supporters who did not have the profile of being a likely voter. And he, in fact, did bring out three million more votes than Mitt Romney got in four years before. So I think people have learned from that. They have expanded their likely voter screen um, across the board. Pollsters are now reporting both likely voters and all registered voters. And it does seem that in 2018, the polls were quite accurate in calling those midterm elections. So I am seeing more uh, likely voter models that are taking into account supposed hard to find voters. And I do have much more confidence in the public polls that are out there uh, in what they're reporting. And do you think, Paul Mitchell, that that's true, that that's what went wrong in 2016, that basically we were missing large swaths of the electorate that ended up coming out on election day? Yeah, I think Matt's absolutely right. Um, what oftentimes what happens is when a pollster, like they call political data to try to obtain a voter file, they ask us who's the likely voters. And so we'll look back to 
the last couple, you know, similar elections. So the last couple presidential races is an example. And I believe what happened was that when you were in these Rust Belt states and you look back to 2008 and 2012 and said, well, who were the voters that turned out? You really undervalued the, the percentage of turnout that might come from lower income, lower educated white Democrats who really were attuned to Trump's message and turned out in numbers that weren't expected, but just weren't excited about voting for Obama in those 2008, 2012 years and didn't turn out and participate. So Matt's totally right that the uh, undercounting of a lot of these these voters really did shake our confidence in polls because it just kind of got it so wrong in those parts of the country. And Jane John, you're confident as Matt Barreto is that we are getting a better turnout model this time because it sounds like it's in that process where there's the greatest opportunity for human subjectivity and potentially human error. Well, there's potential for human error everywhere, but I think that where the art comes in is the likely voter model. So you can use the past, the most recent past as the best predictor. But I think what you see in this year is externalities that no one had expected. Not only do we have the pandemic to deal with, with respect to in-person voting, but we've also changed mode of voting with respect to early voting possibilities, uh, efforts by certain parties to reduce turnout uh, by restricting access to the ballot and also providing mail-in. So there's a host of new events and new situations that can, I think, contribute again to creating a better likely voter model, but can also trip us up. So in general, I think they're both right. But at the same time, we have in this year, uh, not only as many, many, many more hurricanes, but a lot more things to take account of in a likely voter model. So, Matt Barreto, if you're currently a pollster for the Biden-Harris campaign, I mean, how much has the pandemic sort of scrambled or changed the way that you do polling? I think Jane makes a very important point on the large number of early voters this year. That's one thing that has really increased over past years. We had been on a, a general linear growth. More people were voting early. But this year, it has jumped up dramatically. And so as pollsters, we want to make sure that as it gets closer to Election Day, we are accurately capturing those people who vote early. Now, luckily, and Paul can tell you about this, the voter file has that updated information. So we can go to a file vendor and say, uh, I'd like to interview people who have already cast a ballot and talk to them about how they voted. Or I'd like to interview people who have a likely voter profile but have not yet voted. So getting the data right on the first step is so critical to make sure that we understand who exactly is voting this year and in what method. And then our job is to piece that together. Do we have, you know, 50% of the model is early voters? How many percent are going to be election day voters and so on? And that has dramatically changed this year, I think, in ways that, you know, no one could have anticipated a year ago that we would have such a huge uh, early vote and now trying to understand their preferences. So Paul Mitchell, how do you specifically adjust for that? I mean, Jane Jen is talking about how Republicans have stepped up their efforts to keep people from voting, you know, underscoring both Matt and Jane, the fact that more ballots have been cast by mail. I mean, how do you account for that in a poll? Is that something that's contained in like the margin of error? I mean. Well, uh, first off, what Matt was saying, uh, that, that, 
we have so many voters who've already cast ballots and a lot of voters might not recognize this or understand it, but when you do cast an early vote, the county registrars will flag your voter record and data vendors like ourselves will be able to obtain that. And what ends up happening is Matt might have a, a poll that he ran last week and he'll say, hey, Paul, get me the flags of everybody who voted so I can kind of split my polling results into who's already voted and who has yet to vote. And I talked to one pollster yesterday in one of the competitive congressional districts. I asked him how it was going. He says, well, it's going great. I'm up eight points uh, among the people who voted, but I'm behind by six points among the people who haven't voted. So it does create this potential for volatility um, when, as an example, uh, this year we see a lot of Republicans saying they want to vote in person. Uh, if they vote in person on election day and there's long lines, say in Orange County, where we've never seen long lines for voting, will that reduce their total voter turnout from that Republican population that might have otherwise been considered to be a very likely voter? On the flip side, like what Jane was saying, we might see uh, cases in other states where uh, there are overt or subtle acts of voter suppression and where a model might say, well, this person's really likely to vote, but not necessarily account for the fact that uh, in order to vote, they have to jump through certain hurdles that that, that voter ends up not doing. So there is still potential for volatility in all of this, and that's what essentially the margin of error is for. We're talking with Paul Mitchell, Vice President of the Political of Political Data Inc. We're also talking with Matt Barreto, co-founder of Latino Decisions, and Jane Jenna, Professor of Political Science at USC. And you, our listeners, join us. Uh, tell us, how do you how do you feel about the polls? I mean, do you trust the polls? Was your confidence in polls shaken in 2016? Are the polls reflecting what you feel like you're seeing on the ground? Is there one that you check regularly that you'd like to put to our guests? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So Jane Jen, I mean, how do we know if a poll is good or not, what do you look for that constitutes a quality poll versus a poorly done poll? Well, I mean, it varies. It varies from election to election, but I think the polls that provide enough background information on how they got their sample, what kind of weighting they're using, a description, a good description of the likely voter model, if that's what they've done, and as opposed to registered voters, how it is that they attempt to consider all of these potential uh, changes that are a result of the volatility are important. So for example, it's hard to look at national polls that are done of the entire U.S. and draw a huge amount from it. I think it's much more useful at this stage in the election to look at more localized races, whether mm. that is to say by state. But as Paul was just describing, many of these circumstances are very local and are below the state level. So it might be use useful to see what's happening in Palm Beach County or what's happening in Broward County or other locations or in Texas, for example, or even Arizona. And so often the largest polls and the, you know, the biggest ones are looking for the state beyond the state at the federal level, but the entire uh, national level, it doesn't tell us much about what's happening in individual states. So I think at this point in the election cycle, I look much more toward the local polls and things at the state level. That's where the variation is happening. Matt Preto, is it good to rely on like a poll aggregator like 538? Yeah, poll aggregators, I think, are nice when um, 
Nate Silver started putting those things together, it you know reminded all of us that no one individual poll um, you know has the final say. As as Jane just explained, they have underlying differences in their sample construct as well as their familiarity with the state. What are they waiting party ID to? What are they waiting the geographic distribution to? So the nice thing about polling aggregators is they bring together um, a variety of different polls to tell us what the average is. Now within there though, you still might question whether or not a single individual poll, which is not well done, is coming in and tipping that average one way or the other. And what 538 has increasingly, every year they update and adjust their, their models, they assign different weights. So if they know from looking at a poll that it is too heavily Democratic or too heavily Republican or what, what have you, they adjust that and they say, this is an important piece of information, but I'm not going to let it overly color the results. So those aggregators can be quite helpful. We're talking about the accuracy and reliability of presidential election polls, particularly this year that are showing Joe Biden with, in some cases, double digit leads overall and particularly in some swing states recently. You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us at forum at kqed.org or getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We'll get to your calls and comments right after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about polling with Paul Mitchell, Vice President of Political Data, Inc., Jane Jun, Professor of Political Science at USC, an expert on public opinion, political behavior, and polling methods and analysis, and Matt Barreto, co-founder of Latino Decisions. He's also Professor of Political Science and Chicano Studies at UCLA and currently a pollster for the Biden-Harris campaign. You are... Listeners are with us. Give us a call with your questions about polling, 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Tell us, how much do you trust the major national polls? Is there a poll you check regularly on the presidential election? Did you feel burned by the polls in 2016? And are you concerned that the polls are not reflecting what you are seeing on the ground? Let me go to caller David in Oakland. Hi, David. Join us. Hi, good morning. Say, I was talking to my father about this, and I was excited to hear the program this morning. Um, I'm a little uh, peeved about the polling in 2016, and I was talking to my father, who lives in the Midwest, about this, and we were talking about maybe the silent majority, and that people like him, if a pollster calls him, they'd be more likely to say he'd be more he would say that he wouldn't give them any information about his particular political affiliation or his voting preferences. And I think this is really a difficult thing to deal with in polling. And I don't, Mm -hmm. maybe you guys could discuss that or address that. Uh, I'll take my, um, I don't know, discussion off the air. Thank okay, you. well, David, thanks for the question. And David's not alone. I mean, Scott asked, is it, is it possible Trump voters are saying Biden to pollsters, but will actually vote for Trump? This was something that was suggested happened in 2016. Paul Mitchell, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, there's an old theory that actually, since we're uh, in California, uh, the, the so-called Tom Bradley effect And that was the idea that in the governor's race, Tom Bradley versus Duke Mage, and a lot of Democrats, when they got called by a pollster, 
they would think that the socially desirable response for them to say who they're voting for governor was the Democrat because they were Democrats. So they would say they're voting to, for Tom Bradley, but then that there was some silent vote that essentially voted for Duke Majin instead. And that was why the polls were wrong. There's also been discussion that say in, in, uh, in Florida, that a lot of the Cuban American vote uh, that younger voters wouldn't say who they were supporting because their parents were supporting somebody else. I think a lot of these things have been kind of knocked down recently. There is a is an issue around uh, this effect of social desirability, where you'll find that that people, if you question them or ask a question a certain way, they might answer the question in a way that, that they think that the person on the other end of the line wants to hear the answer. Um, so they want to say something that would make them seem like they're a bad person or or be the quote unquote wrong answer. Um, but there's been other research to kind of go through and use other methodologies like touch tone phone where you don't have that effect uh, or maybe even online where people seem more than willing to uh, express their true viewpoints. Hmm. And um, and so, yeah, this is an issue that comes up, but I think pollsters have been doing a great job at trying to adjust around that around those effects. Well, Tom writes, my concern is that people who might vote for Biden will figure he already hasn't won, so why bother? Matt Barreto, do you think positive polls for the candidate that you like actually deter voters from turning out? I mean, this was also a question about whether this happened to Hillary in 2016. I think two things. Uh, The first is, as you said, you know, if people had that mindset, on the Democratic side in 2016, which I think it was a very small number, but let's say we can all anecdotally find one or two people who tells us that, they sort of learned their lesson in 2016. So I think on the Democratic side, you have a lot of uh, enthusiasm and energy for not taking any lead you see in the polls for granted and for committing to vote. And that's what we're seeing so far with a lot of energy over the early vote uh, and commitments you know, to people to continue voting through this weekend and through election day. So I don't think you're going to see that uh, necessarily. There is also though, the possibility of sort of like a bandwagon momentum effect that if you see your team is winning, your side is winning, you get even more excited and more encouraged. And so there's a debate in the literature in the academic literature on that. And there is evidence of both. You know, if you see your candidate down by 15 points, maybe you sort of give up and don't show up as well. So it's definitely not the case after the 2016 cycle that I would expect that Uh, this year. I think Democrats are definitely, you know, assuming the race is very tight and trying to get every vote out. That's what we're doing. Well, let me go next to Peter in San Francisco. Hi, Peter. Join us. Yes. Hi. Uh, You touched on a sort of reverse issue that I have, and that is I don't trust, for that matter, distrust. I try and be unswayed as much as possible unless I understand the financial underpinnings of polls. So who is paying? Uh, In my experience, with with localized polls, polls are often extremely biased in the sense that they are paid for by a party that wants to push forward some kind of a program or some kind of ideas, and then they'll bias the questions, they'll leave out options and so on, because they really want the poll to confirm what they already want to do in the first place, uh, or or whatever it is that they want. Peter, so thanks. unless yeah. I understand the, fi- the finances, I don't really understand what how the fi- if I don't understand how the finances work, I don't know what to what to think of the polls. It's a good point, Peter. And Jane, Jen, I mean, it kind of brings us to the different types of polls that are out there, right? I mean, there are university polls, polls done by news organizations and polls that are definitely paid for 
by the candidates. Can you talk about the reliability of them based on who pays for what? I think Peter's made a good point here. And then what you want to do is be mindful of the background and the purpose for each of these polls. And so to the extent uh, that that is true, probably uh, most of the time you'll want to look at polls and rely more on polls that don't have a particular candidate or position in mind. And ordinarily that means polls that are associated with media outlets, reputable ones, or universities. Uh, There haven't been as many great university polls recently for a host of reasons. Uh, It's expensive to do. It needs to be done quickly. And universities don't always have the money to do that, nor do they move quickly. So I think that some of the best polls this year are, and throughout this whole election cycle, have been media outlets. And I think we should return to a point that both Paul and Matt spoke about, and that is poll aggregators. And under these circumstances, you have uh, specialists and experts who can evaluate the extent to which polls are Um, whether in how they were conducted or how the results are presented, biased in some way. And those polls can either be removed or they can be weighted much more at a lower weight than the ones that are more reputable that are actually trying to get the right answer. So Peter's correct that what you don't want to do is look too much at a poll that has a specific position to forward, but instead look for the polls that are really trying to get the right answer. And Jane Jen, I know that you your research is focused a lot on gender. And of course, we've been seeing a lot of polls suggesting that suburban white women are breaking from Trump. What kind of stock do you put in those kinds of polls? Do you feel like that's probably an accurate representation of what's happening, particularly in swing states? Well, I think it depends on the swing state. And I do think that it depends a lot on the area that you're talking about. Suburbs are no longer bastions of white privilege. Suburbs are widely populated across the United States, not just in California, New York, New Jersey, but elsewhere as well with all kinds of people. So white women in the suburbs, uh, they remain a, a large part of the voting base for, in general, all candidates, but they remain Uh, at this point, still white females, the stalwart of the Trump support. So as you know, in in 16 white female voters, whether they're suburban or not, supported Trump by something like around 52 to 43. When during an election where Hillary Clinton, a white woman, a married white woman who lived in the suburbs at that time, was uh, running on the top of the ticket for the Democratic Party. So for women, white women, to switch over and for them to only to allow 2020 to be only the third time in presidential elections since 1952 to vote more Democratic than Republican. I find that a very uh, high cl- hill to climb mm. and doubtful that that's going to happen. I think that you, you got to remember the last couple of times that this happened, right? When was the, when were the two times that white females, and this isn't only suburban, well-educated women, but when was the last time that white women voted more for a Democratic candidate than a Republican in presidential races? That was 96. Remember 96 when Bill Clinton wins, but this is a three-person race because you have also included it during that time, a third-party candidate of Ross Perot. The last time it really happens with a a significant two-party, only a two-party race is in 1964, Johnson Goldwater. And in that election, I believe Goldwater has probably the lowest proportion of the popular vote. I think it's around 38.5 or 39% of the popular vote. And that it's a landslide in the electoral college, but that is the only election that's a two party strict Republican Democrat election where white females have voted by majority 
for a Democrat, that is to say Johnson over Goldwater. The conditions have to be that extreme for that to happen. So I, I don't, I think that there will be movement that you are seeing that movement um, among white female voters, maybe those in the suburbs, uh, certainly those with a college degree moving away from Trump and toward Biden, but the margins are still not enormous. You still have 40 some percent of white suburban or white college educated women supporting Trump. That's a lot of people. And you have to turn a lot of pe- people from Trump over to Biden. I don't see it, that happening. Matt Berto, give me uh, your what your research on Latino voters is telling you, because we've also heard lots of different things among Latino voter polls, basically some showing that uh, that Biden support that actually it's less than it was for Hillary in 2016. Then we're now seeing some movement where Latinos are now showing more support for Biden. I mean, what what are your polls telling you? What are you telling the candidates? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that um, most of the national data or state data you're seeing on Latinos or African-Americans or Asian-Americans comes from very small sample sizes that are not meant to be representative of that group. They just happened to interview 122 Latinos in their poll. So while they have the data, they go, oh, look, let's make something of this. Uh, And and so the many, you know, whether it's a poll you like or a poll you don't like, uh, many of those data points are very small and not necessarily representative. In the large Latino polls that we see, whether it's by uh, a Spanish language media outlet like Telemundo or, or Univision, or by a Latino uh, advocacy group like Naleo, you have large samples, they're bilingual, they have correct demographics of the different community. And what we're seeing there is that Latino voters in this cycle are on track to match or exceed um, the Obama 2012 numbers. Those are the numbers that we've been focused on. That was the last time a Democratic won, uh, candidate won, the last time a Democrat won Pennsylvania, Florida, some of these key states. And the data are looking really good. The Latino population, first of all, is growing in size. So it's larger in almost every state. Uh, And it's breaking at about that, um, what we expect, that traditional sort of 70-30 point by election day. And if those numbers hold, which again, when you look at large sample Latino polls, they they do approach those numbers, that will be very good news uh, for not just the Biden campaign, but for Democrats across the board in many of these other races and many of the competitive congressional races we have here in California, the ones that the Democrats just narrowly won last year. A lot of those were won with record Latino turnout and support. So if we're on track to match those efforts, uh, I think the Democratic Party will be in good standing, but it does take continued outreach. And you know that's what we're doing down the stretch these last few days, continuing to get the vote out, not just the early vote, but to get the vote out on November 3rd on election day. Well, let me go to Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie, join us. Good morning. I just wanted to know, uh, there are a large number of newly registered voters this year, and I was wondering how they're accounted for in the polls. Thanks, Gary. Paul Mitchell? Yeah, actually, um, when we provide polling samples to camp to uh, pollsters, oftentimes they'll give us a quota, like they say that they want a certain percentage of voters to be new registrants. And we also provide flags in the polling samples that will show the registration date. And also show if they have a if they're a quote unquote new registrant, they would be somebody with a more recent registration date and no prior vote history. There's a lot in California of re-registrants, and a re-registrant might be somebody who's voted every election, but then they wandered into a DMV, got automatically re-registered, or they moved 
And in California now, when you move and fill out your change of address form, you can be automatically re-registered. And we find new registrants with no prior vote history can be uh, somewhat lower turnout. Although there's also a breakdown based on how you register. A new registrant with no vote history who registers online is much more likely to vote. Oddly, we've also found from 2016 that new registrants who register to vote online on the night of a political debate, they're even higher turnout, um, where somebody who has no prior vote history who registers maybe at the DMV, and they might not even realize that they got registered because the process is kind of so automatic, uh, those people might be much lower turnout. So it's definitely one of those key metrics that pollsters use in their polling and oftentimes they'll really just ensure that the percentage of, of respondents they have that are new registrants matches what we say is on the voter file and what we say is in the likely voter universes of those new registrants. Well, Yurik writes, why are some important political races only polled infrequently? For example, the Mississippi Senate race has only been polled a few times in the last year, while Georgia Senate races are polled every day. Mapparetto, thoughts for Yurik? Well, a lot of that is driven, and I think lessons were learned in 2016 where there was a little bit of sparse polling in states that ended up being important. Uh, remember, polling costs money, whether it's um, you know CNN or maybe KQED decides to sponsor a statewide poll in California. That costs money. And so people are putting money into polling, public polling, uh, where they think the race is close and where they think there will be news and coverage of that race. And so a state like Georgia has really elevated this year to be getting lots of polling. They have two Senate races going on at the same time, plus a presidential race, which is expected to be very close. And Mississippi has a very interesting Senate race, um, but it may not be quite as winnable, perhaps, from the perspective of some of those uh, groups in Mississippi. And so they're polling it, but they're perhaps not doing it on a weekly basis like you do see in those key states. Uh, As I said, there's more polling this year. I think it's gotten better than, than 2016 not only the methodology, but the frequency. Uh, but we have to remember that all of these polls cost money and they take time and energy to, to implement. And so the sponsors sort of pick and choose based on where they think there will be the most interest. Matt Bredo, I know you need to leave us at the break. And I wanted to get your reaction to this listener who writes, the polls were not wrong. A single digit lead in polls offers just under 50% probability of it going the other way. Gamblers win hands against the House with similar odds. I'm assuming this listener, of course, is referring to 2016. I mean, again, you worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign as well in 2016. I mean, what's your reaction to this? Because we also heard that overall that that pollsters predicted sort of the popular the the popular vote correctly. Um, so how do you respond to this listener's point about the polls not being wrong? Yeah, the final average of the popular vote um, of the national popular vote in the polls was quite accurate in 2016. And those come from large national samples of the entire country. And those did end up being very accurate. Some polls in states uh, were right on the money. But it is also the case that in some places you had polls coming out in Wisconsin and Michigan showing Clinton up by outside the margin of error, you know, five or six points. And um, we do think in looking back that some of those state polls did miss uh, and did not interview enough uh, Trump voters, people who were infrequent voters, the kind Paul was talking about. I think that has all been corrected. Uh, Most pollsters now, they think very hard about that. Am I missing anyone? Are there these new unlikely voters that I should be taking into account? What about new registrants? 
good pollsters across the board from media companies to inside campaigns to even the ones with advocacy groups, they are asking those hard questions this year to make sure that the data that they're reporting is accurate. So I think we're getting it right a lot more uh, this year and um, that's very important. Matt Barreto, co-founder of Latino Decisions, a political opinion research firm focused on Latino voters, also professor of political science and Chicano studies at UCLA, and currently a pollster for the Biden-Harris campaign. We've also got Paul Mitchell with us, vice president of Political Data, Inc., which provides voter information to political campaigns, consultants, and pollsters. And Jane Jen, an expert on public opinion, political behavior, and polling methods and analysis, a professor of political science at USC. You, our listeners, are with us. We'll have more with them after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the accuracy and reliability of presidential election polls with Jane Jun of USC and Paul Mitchell of Political Data, Inc. And you are listeners. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Let me go next to caller James in Berkeley. Hi, James. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm wondering about the issue of people just lying to pollsters and whether this might call into question the unreliability of this kind of self-report data and if there's any way to correct for that or if you think it's not going on. Uh, Thank you, James. Paul Mitchell, you touched on this earlier, but interestingly, since you mentioned, uh, since we talked about that, we also got this this comment from Henry, I'm a Republican and live in Berkeley. I tell everyone, including pollsters, that I vote for Democrats because it's safer. I once put up a sign in my window for McCain and my window was smashed. I would never tell someone except close family and friends how I vote. I'm too afraid of retaliation. I know you said that you think this is probably more the exception than the rule, Paul Mitchell, but what's your reaction to Henry and to James's question? Yeah, well, um, I mean, clearly there are some people that lie in polls. So if you had a poll and said, you know, uh, have you been abducted by aliens? There's going to be somebody who's going to say, oh, yeah, like they're just going to answer it to be silly or whatever. And we've seen that um, in some polling. But I think that it it essentially the idea of the the whole idea around polling is that you're using large samples, um, you're randomly selecting and you're able to use this methodology to really kind of get the understanding of the overall viewpoints of the electorate. It's almost as if uh, the the basic theory is that in order to understand uh, what a soup tastes like, you don't have to drink the whole bowl of soup. You can take one spoonful and taste it. And if, you know, you have a little bit too much pepper in that particular spoonful, uh, it kind of all balances out. So um, I don't believe that there's any evidence of people purposefully like answering polls in a wrong way. Um, the one thing that I have seen that I always think is funny is that some people who are more politically engaged, they believe that if they tell you that they already voted, that they that the person will say, okay, polls over, thank you very much. And uh, so there's been pollsters that have actually looked at the self-response of people saying that they've already voted and their likelihood of voting uh, compared to people who say that they might not vote. Um, but this is, again, really just around the, the edges. And I think that pollsters are experienced enough to, uh, you know, adjust it and still have meaningful results. Well, Dan tweets, how are polls conducted now? Is it still by phone? This seems useless since no one answers calls from unknown callers. 
Jane, John, what's your response to Dan? I mean, it was interesting because today there was this piece in 538 that talked about how there's this new ABC News Washington Post poll that shows Biden with like a double digit lead over President Trump in Wisconsin and that it was an outlier. But they said that it was a gold standard of polls because they used live phone interviewers called cell phones and landlines. So it does sound like that is still something that's elevated using phones. Well, talking to an actual person with an actual interviewer is still the gold standard in terms of being able to assess whether and answering and asking the question in the same way, assessing the extent to which the person is telling the truth or is distracted or not distracted. And it is the case that it's just difficult to get people on the other end of a phone and that people will not always pick up the phone. That's always been the case. It's probably exacerbated now. But remember that the other alternatives, which are self-reported over the internet or other means, whether you're doing it on your phone or on a computer, these introduce other biases as well. So it is, it's a moving target, you know, doing a good interview. Actually, the gold standard is really a face-to-face interview in person, one person to the next, which is, of course, not impossible, but very difficult in this age, not only for cost, but timeliness as well as the pandemic. I just want to loop back to something that the earlier caller, Henry, uh, rather the comment from Henry and the call from James, um, where Paul had replied with, I think, a good answer about the extent to which, you know, you're going to get these outliers and people will lie. If you're going to be worried about that, you have to be worried about it if you think that they're lying in one direction only. If people are going to lie, you just have a type of person that's going to lie and just tell you that they were abducted by aliens. That's probably equally as likely from a Democrat as from a Republican. So the time to be worried about people not telling the truth in a poll is when you think that there's a systematic nationwide or uh, universal, if to the extent possible, bias for how or what is considered socially undesirable. It is certainly not socially undesirable to call yourself a Trump supporter in Pennsylvania, rural Western Pennsylvania, let's say. It might be socially undesirable for Judy to put up a Biden sign if she lived in South Carolina. So what I think the uh, response that I want to say is that there are always going to be people who don't tell the truth in polls or really anywhere you know, you got to put your height and weight on your uh, driver's license, but how many people actually give the right answer to that? But what you want to do is make sure that there isn't a systematic bias across the board. If there is, then you have to worry. If there's not, it will resolve itself by canceling each other out. Well, let me go to commenter Robert, who writes, what do the panelists think of following the betting odds websites like election betting odds? Do you have any thoughts on that, Paul Mitchell? Um, well, definitely there's, it is an interesting phenomena that uh, in these last couple of election cycles, we've had the opportunity to see these online betting sites. And on these online betting sites, you can go look and see the possibility of somebody winning a congressional race or the presidential race or all other kinds of oddities. The Amy Coney Barrett uh, uh, hearings had betting odds on different things. In one way, it does aggregate the um, the views of a lot of people who might be informed about that issue. And so some people think, well, this isn't going to be so bad of a way to evaluate. Um, the joke on 538 is that it's just a bunch of Scottish teens, uh, you know, betting on on these things in American politics. 
So I never put a lot of stock in those, um, especially since sometimes I'll see internal polling from campaigns. The really high quality polling is generally the stuff that isn't made public. And then I'll look on those betting sites and see that they're they're not really in tune with, with what's happening. I also want to address the prior caller um, about these modes that, that campaigns use or the pollsters use to reach out to voters. Mm-hmm. We've seen an increase in California in particular because we have over 8 million voter files that are the actual voter puts their own you know, registered voter email address on their record uh, that we've seen essentially four types of contact becoming really prevalent, especially among private pollsters. Uh, a email to the poll, to the respondent with a link to their own survey, a text message to the respondent with a link to their survey, and then traditional live phones and cell phones. That kind of four-part multimodal polling sample is becoming much more prevalent among these really, really high-quality uh, pollsters. And then polls like the UC Berkeley poll, and before that, the field poll started transitioning to doing online surveys, but not the kind like you just go to a website and click a link, the one, the kind where they email you your own individual link to your own survey that links back to your voter record. And one great thing about those online surveys is you can't read all 11 ballot measures on a telephone poll to a voter and then read all their local races and everything else like that. It's just unwieldy. But on an online poll, you can actually get through a lot more of those questions um, and there's been a lot of work done to try to match up the quality of those polls with the already known high quality of live phone polls. Let me go to Laura in Ventura. Hi, Laura. Oh, hi. Uh, first of all, I love your program. I love your guests. And I think it's uh, I'm just so glad to have it on the air. Thank you. So and what's your question? question? Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. Yes. How about I'm retired and a senior and widowed? So when they call on the phone and say, would you mind, you know, answering a few questions for this poll? And I usually say yes. But then I get, as they go, I get the slam. Hmm. So I say, excuse me, could you tell me who's sponsoring this poll, where the money's coming from? And inevitably they say, oh, no, I'm sorry, I won't, I can't do that. So then I say, well, then, thank you, but I can't <laughs> continue with your poll. Is this what how do you find out where they're getting paid uh, thanks. or is it important? Uh, Laura, thanks. Jane, Jen, how do you find out? And also, should you be concerned if uh, somebody who is calling you is not willing to tell you who's funded the poll? Absolutely, you should be concerned about it. That's that's a valid question, and any reputable organization that's either supporting it, by reputable I mean not trying to create a push poll, that is to say simply interviewing you, Laura, to try to get you to push you in one direction or another, will tell you who it is. I mean, most of the time when universities uh, engage in this kind of research, they have to follow the process of human subjects approval, which is that you're not to damage anybody in the process of doing so, but you're also to be honest about what you're doing. So if you can't get an interviewer to tell you uh, who is sponsoring the poll or who's paying for it, then you probably are doing exactly the right thing and saying thank you and goodbye. Well, this listener wants to know, are there any particular polls that did an exemplary job of predicting vote margins in the 2018 midterm elections? Any come to mind, Jane Jen? Well, in the midterms, it was it varied a lot by state. 
Um, I, I think there've been, there were quite a lot of good ones. There wasn't one in particular, I think Paul could probably tell us for California, but some of the races here were, is very difficult to do um, really great polls at the district level. So I think that there were, there are a number of them and that I believe Matt had indicated before the creative measures that pollsters are taking using multi-mode, using data from particularly in California that we have so much information on voters from their past behavior. Maybe Paul would have an indication of some of those that were particularly good. Yes. Yeah, in, in California, we're really fortunate to have two high quality public polling outfits, uh, PPIC and UC Berkeley's IGS poll. Those two polls did an excellent job in 2018, really kind of helping uh, us understand those races as they were developing those, those seven or eight really competitive congressional races in particular. Um, and they do polling on the ballot measures that are up right now. Um, those are high quality public polls. But of course, the highest quality polls are actually the campaigns themselves. Uh, they spend a lot of money, do a lot of repeated polling over the course of an election. And the challenge is that nobody uh, actually gets to see those. And oftentimes, if you are getting called uh, to do a poll, it might be that private campaign that's contacting you. And the reason they might not be telling you who they are, or which side they're being funded by, is because they do want honest responses. They don't want to tell you, you know, oh, I'm polling on behalf of the Democratic candidate, and then put you in a position where you feel like, uh, maybe I shouldn't tell you I'm voting for the Democrat or voting for the Republican. So um, uh, it's those private polls that on, unfortunately a lot of the public doesn't see uh, that are really the highest quality. Oh. Paul Mitchell, Vice President of Political Data, Inc., is with us. Jane John, Professor of Political Science at USC and an expert on polling methods and analysis. And you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number if you want to call and weigh in, or you can weigh in online at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook, or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And then this listener, Elaine, writes, I'm wondering if polls ever take into consideration the millions of Americans living abroad. How might that work? Paul Mitchell? Um, we actually do have the voters who live abroad in our voter file. Um, and so they will sometimes, just at the same random uh, chance that any other voter will get into a sample, they'll make it into a sample. This is one of those areas where uh, email polling, uh, emailing somebody a survey and getting them to respond can be a more effective tool because it's a lot easier than calling somebody in France. Um, but uh, we do see some of those folks responding to polls. Um, and in a lot of the polls that are being done right now of people who've already cast ballots, you'll see the first few days of those responses are very heavily weighted towards people who are military or uh, living overseas because they cast their ballots super early. They get their ballots actually before the rest of us. Um, so it is there. Well, Joe writes, can your speakers address the specter of undecided voters in this hyperpartisan environment? Are they lying about being undecided? Are they uninformed? Have they recently emerged from comas? Um, Jane Jen, as someone who studies political behavior, public opinion, I mean, what can you tell us uh, or what light can you shed for for Joe about undecided voters? Well, that's a great question. Uh, hopefully they're not emerging from comas. Um, and it's not clear that they're necessarily lying. They're probably, uh, you know, they're unusual. I mean, most, most pollsters will say today that there are a few people that are undecided in this 
polarized environment that we live in. But what I want to emphasize here is that, you know, 2020 is the year of improbable outcomes. If it seems improbable that people are unsure, it could very well be a function of something quite important that we're going through at this moment. We can't really see it because it's happening right in front of us. But I think we're very much in a partisan realignment in this moment. You, people often wonder, how could you go from being you know, an Obama voter to now being a Trump voter to now being a Biden voter or vice versa? And I think that what you can see right now is a massive realignment from traditional political parties. And this has been happening over the last 20 years. And the question for us all is how do people orient and understand politics in the absence of a partisan identification? Many more people call themselves independent from both parties than either Democratic or Republican alone. And so Joe's question about undecided voters is in essence one about those unmoored by a traditional affiliation to both of these parties. And I think that creates tremendous uncertainty. I don't know that they're lying. They may be uninformed, they may be confused, and they are certainly voters that are not being served particularly well by the parties and the elect and the uh, candidates this season. Do you, given all of that, uh, where are you putting the probability of a Biden win or a Trump win or... Is that something that you, <laughs> yeah, I go think, right ahead. I, I think the probability is high that Biden will win, but I think there's always the possibility. I think you mentioned at the outset of the show that there's, you know, that high eighties or the nineties is the probability that uh, Biden will win uh, electoral college as well as popular vote. But, you know, we, these, the popular vote has gone contra to the electoral college vote twice in 16 years. Now the likelihood that's going to happen again is, has nothing to do with the past. This has everything to do with the current moment. I think it's a high probability for Biden, but I think it's always possible. I think that in order for there to be an enormous landslide, as there was the last one really truly, uh, 1964, you have to see Republican votes below 40%, and, and that's not happening. Mm. What about you, Paul Mitchell? Probably. Well, uh, in 2016, actually, almost to the day uh, in 2016, uh, I tweeted that uh, take out a coin, flip it twice, and if it showed up heads both times that Trump was president. Um, this is at a point where all of my friends and culturally, we were all like, everybody says Hillary's going to win, but there was always this probability. And that was the probability. It was the probability that the average field goal kicker would miss a field goal. Um, and so right now I say, take out a coin, flip it four times. If it heads four times, then Trump is president again. Um, it is a lower probability than it was in the 2016 election, but this is all about probabilities. And, um, you know, it, right now I think that, uh, that it's a much greater probability that Biden will win. Hmm. Paul Mitchell, Vice President of Political Data, Inc. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having us. Jane Jun, Professor of Political Science at USC, appreciate having you on as well. Very delighted to be here. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments on the accuracy and reliability of the presidential election polls. We're six days away. Thanks to Susan Britton and Jameson Weiss for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio.